Lesser Light by Matthew Draper Chapter 10 Lizzie looked at her smartwatch and began to gather all the paperwork back into neat piles. I have a spread to get to, she said. She was beginning to re-emerge from her presentation of the past and to refocus on the present. We had both gained a lot of clarity by sharing our theories on Morgan's motivation. Mysteries had their fuzzy edges shaved off. Too much solving the past can leave your present feeling dissolved, though. I felt wiped out. I had been running into the same walls for years. Finally breaking through, I found no gravity on the other side, afloat. After years of not winning, a win can feel like a loss. It's disorientating. Another thing weighed heavily on my mind. Were the incredible things we saw and did unbelievable or entirely unreal? Humongous bag filled back up. Lizzie leant forward and placed her hand on my arm. Let's visit him before I go. He was only a few tram stops away, in Eccles. I had not been to visit in a while. Outside, the mist had lifted. Literally, not metaphorically. But the day was still grey. We left the canal behind and picked our way through the city, towards the nearest tram stop. Lizzie pulled some antibacterial wipes out of her bag to clean the seats when we got on. The pandemic had left us all with different methods of feeling safe in public spaces. When we were sat together, I returned to a conversation we had skipped over before. You said Morgan didn't believe his own teaching. What did you mean? Lizzie folded her wet wipes inside out into a plastic baggie and stuffed it into her bag then began to explain, as if invited to give a lecture. She had her slides at the ready, metaphorically, not literally. It was branding, wasn't it? All of it. Morgan needed a theory of Christianity he could brand as his own. Christianity is always being rebranded. About every 40 years, the whole system changes. Did you know, in the early 1900s, There were streams of Christianity laser-focused on maintaining white supremacy by any means, and a bunch of proof texts were dragged out of context to protect against interracial marriage. She made air quotes. Preachers and politicians greased each other's palms with arguments that backed one another up. In America, being anti-segregation was considered anti-church. But... As new inclusive theories popped up, known as liberation theory, some Christians, racial minorities and feminists were rising together against the classic structures. I didn't know Lizzie had such a strong handle on church history, but it made sense if this liberation theory crossed over with feminism and anti-racism. Lizzie always dove into very specific rabbit holes of knowledge, and as a black woman, she understood history through a lens I was not always aware of as a white man. After leaving mainstream Christianity, she had found new outlets for social change. Being anti-black was supposedly going out of fashion in churches, 
So denominations picked up a new cause, being anti-abortion and fighting for the so-called traditional family at home. The racism never left, but it went underground. They fronted with new family values language. I had grown up within a Christian tradition, which had been virulently anti-gay and threatened by trans identities. My parents had bought into this apparently traditional church theology, which said my existence as a gay man was a threat to family values. By comparison, St. Michael's had seemed so refreshing with its inclusion. Every era of Western Church has had its unique branding, from Henry VIII launching an attack on the Catholic Church, to Crusades, to raising money for the missionaries going abroad and colonising cultures, to raising money for so-called pro-life, then raising money to fight against, you know, the gays and stuff. This is just the latest in a long trend of rebranding church in a unique and very fundable form. I followed her line of thinking. In order to stay relevant, new enemies had to be built up every few decades. But St. Michael's hadn't created a specific enemy to fight against. I interrupted Lizzie to ask, Who is the latest then? For us, it was subtle. It was everyone. Lizzie announced this with a flourish. The non-converts. Morgan created such a distinct umbrella identity within our church that everyone else was a total alien to us. We had miracles we could never explain to them. Even other Christians didn't believe in our G. They didn't follow the same understanding of God that we did. Imagine if St. Michael's had expanded the way Morgan wanted. The inside and outside would have grown exponentially. My eyebrows were furrowed. Sure, but we had... I lowered my voice. Being on the tram was a very public space for such a discussion, though no one was paying attention to us. A middle-aged man was reading the Metro. A teenage couple were holding hands and sharing a pair of earphones to listen to music. Speaking quietly to disguise the absurdity of our history so that these others on the tram couldn't hear something they would not understand aligned with Lizzie's understanding of us versus them. The others would never understand us. Non-cons became the default enemy. But we had real miracles, I hissed. A video reel of moments fluttered across my mind, projecting images against the inside of my head. A loaf of bread, torn before communion. Sweating palms lifted skyward. Lightning passing between Dylan and me as we prayed a glow reverberating down the skin of our outstretched arms. My hands cupped either side of Christine's face, looking deep into her eyes and speaking her future in words I believed at the time came directly from G. To prophesy a partner at St. Michael's was going to be in her life forever. She had glanced momentarily at Oscar. In another memory, Jeremy and I stood in the rain outside St. Michael's first thing one Sunday morning, calling for the clouds to move away, to leave, to shift across the sky. Our whole gang ate a picnic that same Sunday under a cloudless sky. I remembered running so fast, shifting effortlessly at great speed from street to street in Sheffield, one minute outside the city hall and moments later skidding to a stop near the cathedral. Did we? Lizzie pressed the red button to stop the tram, and we got up to wait near the door. 
Of course we did. You remember when our food increased to include everyone who arrived at small group, no matter how much we cooked. What if we just made enough for everyone we invited? We exited the tram, but didn't move off the stop while we continued this discussion. How often did we pray for people to be healed? Every service. Morgan finished each sermon with a call to action. He used to say G wanted to heal anyone who was here, to come forward with any ailments, from a common cold to a broken leg. G's presence had anointed us. Morgan would encourage us to gather around and pray for those who had come forward. Oscar, Sebastian and I would touch the hurting part of a person and pray aloud. Headache, be gone. Have faith in the power of Gabriel. May the light of the night brighten your body. Did you see anyone get healed, though? Lizzie's eyes flashed. It was clear she was hurt by my questioning the way she understood and remembered what had happened at St. Michael's. Those who had limped to the front often limped away, it was true. But, as Morgan explained, it took faith to be healed. If your faith wavered, your healing would not come. People claimed their headaches had left them. Someone had seen a broken leg literally grow out. I remembered them saying so. And there were extreme stories too. One evening, the presence had been particularly heavy. You could feel the power in the very atmosphere of the church. Morgan had invited an elderly wheelchair user to the front of the church, assisted by her grown-up daughter. Can these old bones rise? Morgan had cried quoting the Bible from a story of skeletons pulling on flesh and joining a war. Can we have two strong lads down here? Oscar, you're strong. Come on down. Sebastian, too. I had been about to volunteer, but he waved me away. Get an arm under her shoulders, each of you, Morgan had instructed, kneeling before the small but faith-filled woman in her chair. Dipping a finger into a bag of grey powder, Morgan drew a line above each of her eyebrows, like wings, painted across her forehead. Feel his wings beneath you and rise, he cried. Sebastian and Oscar lent an arm and a shoulder to the woman, helping her gently but firmly to her feet. Her sandals touched the floor as she pressed her weight onto one foot and then the other. Her muscles were weakened from years of not walking far. As small as she looked, she weighed heavily against Sebastian, whose face gave the impression he was more responsible for holding her upright than the wings of Gabriel. Together, the three figures stepped out across the stage, one short step after the other, right to left, in full view of the congregation. A low cheer began at the front of the church and rumbled backwards through the rows, clapping and shouting, whooping, hoorays and hallelujahs, come on, and he can do it. Not she can. As we watched with our own eyes, this elderly woman literally stepped out in faith, rising from her chair to walk in front of us. Can these old bones walk? Morgan shouted, joining the din. Later, we had seen her daughter, cheeks tear-strained with joy, or something else, pushing her mother from the building in her wheelchair and using a motorised disabled ramp to lift her into the side entrance of a van specially designed to transport her mother more easily from the nursing home to visit the outside world. As I shared this story, Lizzie stopped me. 
Harry, will you shut up? Don't you know it's actually gross to use disabled people as a sermon prop? She said. I shouldn't have to explain to you. Many people who use wheelchairs can walk short distances and move about. The chair is a tool, not a burden. Hefting an old woman out of the security of her chair to parade her in front of an audience is not evidence of a miracle. If churches want the deaf to hear, they are better off paying for an interpreter to sign the sermon, not a supernatural team to try and pray the deaf away. She was right. Everything we thought we saw, we didn't see. Do you understand? I did understand her point of view. And yet, I had felt G's supernatural power. Hadn't I? The same power had thrown us to the floor at times and at others lifted us toward the sky. You cannot dismiss those experiences just because you have become the outsider, gone to being a non-con. An uneasy silence settled between us. Was I an unbeliever too? The more I tried to find a specific event or example, the less I could locate one. And yet, here we were, at the gates of the cemetery where Oscar lay buried, and the reality of G's power, or our belief in it, was real enough to have killed him. Lesser Light is an online event. Head to lesserlight.blog to join in the comment section or share this story on Facebook, Twitter, Hive or your favourite social media platform. The Lesser Light paperback is available from lulu.com or other booksellers or you can download the ebook now. But remember, no spoilers until New Year's Day. The story is fictional, but if the elements about trauma, cults or recovery have affected you, you can find helplines at lesserlight.blog.